Well, this past week on The Tonight Show with Jimmy Fallon, the young star slugger from the New York Yankees, Aaron Judge, was placed in the middle of New York City to interview Yankees fans on their favorite players. Many of them said they were impressed with this young guy named Aaron Judge and what he was do doing at such a young age. And he would then ask them why and talk more about Judge with them. But then he would bring up a photo of himself and say, you know, people often think I look a lot like Judge. And that's when fans started realizing who they were talking to. And they were just aghast. It took a sign, it took a photo to direct fans to the real thing in front of them. The past few weeks, we've been looking at the signs that Jesus performed in his earthly ministry. So in the first half of the book of John, which is an account of Jesus' ministry, John gives a series of signs, things Jesus did, that were not only amazing in and of themselves, but pointed to something, to someone greater, to Jesus. Our passage this morning reminds us why Jesus performed these signs at all and what he desires from his people. So if you have a Bible, turn to John chapter 4, and we'll begin in verse 46. So Jesus came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed and all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. Here's what I want us to see this morning from this simple passage. First, the signs of Jesus show his power. The signs of Jesus show his power. And second, the signs of Jesus are meant to lead us to him. The signs of Jesus are meant to lead us to him. So since cleansing the temple, which we looked at two weeks ago, Jesus has had a visit from Nicodemus, where he told him he must be born again. He's taught his disciples in the first part of this chapter four, Jesus has visited with a Samaritan woman at a well and revealed himself to her as the Messiah, the one sent from God to save his people. And here in verse 46, Jesus arrives back at Cana where he had performed his first sign, water into wine. And we see there that he's met by a man coming from Capernaum, a town about 15 miles away. John calls this man an official or in other translations, a nobleman. Most likely, he was a Jew working for the Roman government, Herod. And he comes to Jesus because his son is ill. And, and not just ill, but verse 47, he's at the point of death. This man had evidently heard a lot about Jesus, word about this miracle worker had spread. And, and so when Jesus is nearby, this man sees a golden opportunity for his son to be brought back to health. So he journeys to ask Jesus for help. Jesus responds in verse 48. We'll look at that later. And then the official begs him further in verse 49. And then in verse 50, Jesus utters amazing words of power. Go, your son will live. 
It seems like a bit of a cliffhanger, though, doesn't it? I wonder if, if the people listening there wanted to go see what would happen, but didn't want to make the 15-mile trek. I mean, Jesus doesn't work a sign here. He merely says what will happen. Your son will live. Any, anyone can say anything, right? I, I don't know about you, but I don't know how I would have accepted that. I might have pressed him more, like, come with me. But Jesus does it other times. But this father seems really desperate. And so in verse 50, he's, uh, John says that he believes the word Jesus had spoken and he gets up and goes and leaves for home. Uh, imagine that trip. Uh, stressful, agonizing. He, he's leaving behind the only chance he has left that his son can be healed and he's taking Jesus' word for it. His son will live. And it seems like he's traveled quite a distance into the next day by verse 51. So he's traveling and his servants come to meet him with good news. His son's recovering. He's getting better. Imagine the relief and joy that must have come flooding into the man's heart. His son was going to live. He wasn't going to die. And so right away, he wants to figure out if this indeed had been the work of Christ. And so he asks his servants when the tide had turned, when his son had begun showing signs of health. And they respond there in verse 52 by saying it was the previous day at the seventh hour, about one o'clock in the afternoon. The father recalls his meeting with Jesus and remembers it was at that very time that Jesus said to him, your son will live. So we don't see what happens as the man completes his trip and comes home and gives his son a hug and welcomes him back to the land of the living and healthy. John merely tells us that he believed him and his entire household. The sign Jesus had promised had come about and it led to growing faith in this man's heart. And friends, this sign points us yet again to the power of the Messiah, the power of Jesus Christ. Remember when we studied how he's turned water into wine, he did it not with an incantation, not uttering a spell. He merely commanded the servants to take the water to the master of the feast and it became wine, remember? And here in an even more desperate situation, we see Jesus manifesting his power yet again. It's not to keep a wedding party going, it's to save a life of a young child. Jesus doesn't need to go with this father. He doesn't need to whip together a potion or administer a healing medication. He declares with his words, the healing of this man's son, and it comes to pass. Your son will live. Coming from the lips of the Lord, those are not words of wishful thinking. Those words are decree. For those of us who have spent years in church, this may sound like a typical Jesus story. But just let this sink home for us this morning. Perhaps you felt Jesus' presence with you in a special way this week. Perhaps he seemed distant. But one thing that almost always affects each of our lives at an intimate level that we cannot ignore is our physical health, right? Our frailty. Many things can seem abstract, but one thing that always seems very concrete and preoccupies our thoughts and concerns is our health. We dread that day we might receive a diagnosis. We don't want to think about how our bodies can age. We don't want to think how we can be put in harm's way when we travel or when we work. Physical security and health are so important to us. And, and while we have great responsibility to steward our bodies, if we're honest, one of the greatest fears in our lives is the unpredictability of our health. We don't know how long it's going to last. We don't know how long our loved ones will live. 
physical sickness can seem an untamable beast at times because doctors sometimes shrug their shoulders and can do no more. But look here at Jesus. He's confronted with a feverish boy and in an age with much less medical expertise, this situation looks really bad. But Jesus utters five words in the face of one of our greatest fears. Go, your son will live. Much like he rebukes demons elsewhere, Jesus rebukes the sickness. At that very moment, 15 miles away in Capernaum, the fever breaks. The child takes a turn. Those waiting at his bed are given hope, and the servants make plans to leave and tell their master what's happened. All because of five words from the mouth of Jesus. Church, see the power of the Messiah. Jesus spoke. Sickness fled. What magnificent glory and power Jesus shows in this sign. I wonder, are you desperate this morning? Can you relate to this official pleading with God for help? Are there situations in your life that bring you anxious and fearful today? Maybe it is your health. Maybe you sense your wellness declining or your doctor has given you some bad news. Maybe a parent or a child is suffering and you don't know how to help. Maybe it's the fearful unknown. You just, you just don't know how God has called you to suffer for his name's sake. You don't know what blessings or trials might be in store for you. Maybe it's financial security. Maybe it's broken relationships that you haven't been able to mend. What makes you desperate, brother, sister? Here you can be reminded of the power of Jesus. He's so strong, he can utter words from afar and the deed is done. He's so powerful, he can tell off sickness and it departs. He's so kind that he listens to the cry of those who are desperate. Jesus is the powerful savior of the world. His signs show his power. This one is no different. But there's a second thing for us to see this morning. I think this is the point of the passage. The signs of Jesus show his power, yes, but the signs of Jesus are meant to lead us to him. So look back at verse 48. We skipped over this before on purpose because I wanted to come back and look at it after we saw Jesus' sign. So this man comes to him begging for help. And if you're familiar with Jesus, you would expect him to respond kindly and do what the man requests right away, right? Yeah, sure. I'll come with you. Drop everything. But there in verse 48, we see not a word of comfort from Jesus, but an accusation. Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. That you there is a plural you. Jesus is saying not only to this man, but to all the Jews, you people will not believe unless you see what I can do. He's diagnosing their spiritual state. You will only believe if you see miraculous wonders, he's saying. It's a piercing statement from Jesus. Jesus isn't always the nice guy. He cares about the souls of those who are coming to him, not just their physical well-being. He sees straight to the hearts of these Jews, and he sees they appreciate his signs. They, they believe his power. But that's where it stops for them. They don't want to accept his identity that he claims, his messiahship, his mission to save God's people. This sign here in these verses is actually kind of a bookend to chapters two and four as a whole, where John has strategically, editorially put together a section to prove who Jesus is and what his mission is in coming to the world. John's put together all these things and he wraps it up with this. 
Will you believe in Jesus or merely his power? Jesus has come as the son of God to save. He's come as the promised rescuer of God's people. He's come to bring living water of redemption. But here's this official, and he's asking for a sign. He, he wants his son to live. Jesus is not being unsympathetic, but he's taking this occasion to, to make a point. This man, any man, any Jew, any person must come to Christ, not merely because they appreciate his power. Remember, this has already been an issue in John's gospel. Back at the end of chapter 2, Jesus is working signs at the Passover feast in Jerusalem, and we read that many believed in his name when they saw the signs. But then in verse 24, we see that Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. People were believing in his power, but not believing in him. So I don't know, I don't think scripture shows us here whether this official is coming to Jesus in true faith or just to get something from him. But regardless, Jesus is making an important point to us, to anyone who would come to him. We must come to him and trusting ourselves to him, not merely to get something from him. He is not our cosmic genie who's there for us to just wish out of the lamp and get everything we want. He's come as God in the flesh, king over all, demanding full allegiance. It's interesting to note that earlier in chapter 4, Jesus received many believers among the Samaritans. If you remember, the Samaritans were not likable people by the Jews. They were ostracized. They were outsiders. They were unclean. And, and Jesus seeks out not only a Samaritan, but a Samaritan woman, women being looked down on in that culture. He finds not only a Samaritan woman, but an adulterous Samaritan woman, a shamed Samaritan woman. And he offers her salvation, living water. He reveals to her that he's the Messiah. And he shows her that he, he knows everything about her, which shocks her. And, and she realizes who he is and she believes. And she runs back and tells others. And, and, and they don't come demanding miracles of Jesus. They hear the testimony of the woman. They hear Jesus' words and they believe. But here, Jesus is back with his people with the Jews, the ones who should have been looking for a Messiah, who should have been ready to believe. But all they want from him is what they can get from him. They want a magic show. See there in verse 45, Jesus is back in Galilee. And even though he's welcomed, he knows he'll have no honor there, verse 44. They, they welcome him, verse 45. But why? Because they, they've seen all that he do, had done in Jerusalem. They'd seen Jesus' wonders. They were delighted to have them, him with them. They were astonished. They would not give him their hearts. They would not believe in him as the Messiah, the Son of God. They would not follow after him. 
So that first point that we talked about is really important and true. Jesus' signs do indeed show his power. That's part of their purpose. But that first point isn't enough. In fact, if that's enough, then it's a very damning indictment on those who would see his miracles. We must see in the signs of Jesus not only his power, but a deeper purpose, what he's really there to do. He's there as Savior. He's there to redeem the hearts of his people and bring them back to God. Aaron Judge, sitting in the middle of New York City, is not getting people to look at his picture and admire it. He's trying to get them to put together that he's the guy in the picture. He's that Yankee slugger. In the same way, Jesus' signs and the purpose of his signs overall is not meant for us merely to stand in awe at the power of this king, but to recognize that he's the king, to believe in him for who he is. I know some of you have been to the Grand Canyon. I, I've never been. I've always wanted to go. Hopefully I will at some point. I see pictures, but you know, pictures don't do anything justice. I want to see the Grand Canyon. I want to be overwhelmed by it. So what if tomorrow I just said, okay, you guys, I'm out for a few weeks. Uh, deal with that. I'm going to pack up my family. We're going to drive the 30-odd hours to Arizona. Finally, um, just come up to, to where this should be. Uh, and, and what if, you know, Wednesday or Thursday, we roll up and we see a sign that says Grand Canyon Overlook, one mile. I mean, we should be excited, right? That'd be awesome. But what if at that moment, I just pull over the car quickly. I got the whole family out. We, we lined up in front of the sign. We waved down a, a semi, asked the guy to take our picture. And then we, we just sat on a bench. We just looked at the sign. Wow, it's right, it's the Grand Canyon's over there. Wow, that's awesome. And then, and then we went to dinner. We just talked about the sign, how, how beautiful it was. And then, then we drove home to Percival. We got on Instagram and Facebook and we put filters on and we took pictures of the sign. We put them up for everybody to be impressed. But we just missed the Grand Canyon. I mean, how ridiculous would that be? Friends, it is ridiculous to admire the signs of Jesus, the great shows of his power, as great as they can be, and yet not put our trust in him, in the performer of the signs, in the king come to save. How, how might you be this morning seeking to use Jesus without worshiping him? How might you be manipulating your relationship with Jesus without obeying him? Here, Jesus has a chance to show off for the crowd. But he merely speaks. He tells this official his son will recover. And when the man sees, he believes. Jesus' signs are wonderful, but they have a specific purpose. They're meant to bring us to faith, not just awe at his power. Are you impressed with Jesus this morning? Or are you impressed and you believe in him? If you're here and you're not a Christian, this account should show you that Jesus has come not just as a miracle worker or a good teacher, Two things people are readily willing to praise him for. 
He's come as Savior, and he, bear, he didn't spare anything to, to show that was true. He came because he saw each of us in a desperate state of sin. See, regardless of whether you're a better person than people in your workplace, regardless of whether you think you're a better person than people in your family, regardless of whether you think you're a better person than people sitting right next to you here, God says in his word that each of us have committed sin against him and deserve judgment for ourselves. God is not partial when it comes to sin. We have no way to get out from under our judgment except if someone perfect comes and takes that for us. And that's what Jesus came to do. That's what these signs are meant to help us see. Jesus is the son of God, the Messiah, come to redeem his people. And Jesus promised to this man, your son will live. But God promised us, my son will die so that you might live. Jesus came to die to carry the penalty of all who had placed their trust in him. So if you're here this morning and you feel immense guilt from your past, if you feel wrongdoings in any sense, that is evidence of God's justice piercing your heart, convicting you of sin. He made your heart and he knows how to get to your heart. So friend, would you soften your heart and trust in him, turn to him. The guilt will be washed away. You will be saved. Repent of your sins and turn to Jesus. If you have questions about that, talk to someone sitting next to you. Talk to someone at the fellowship lunch afterwards. Talk to me. We'd love to tell you more about how you might put your trust in Christ. But for those of us this morning who are Christians, this passage is a serious one. I think it has incredible warning for us, especially if you're like me and you've pretty much grown up in church. I mean, if, if that's you, you know this story. You've heard sermons about this story before. You've seen flannel graphs of this sermon before. You know the accounts of Jesus. You grew up going to vacation Bible school. You're a pro. But take care. Don't merely be amazed at the works of Jesus and miss the claim he has on your life as king. Don't use Jesus in prayer or church attendance merely to get what you want from him. He's not your, your genie. He's not your shrink. He's your savior. He's your Lord. The author David Wells writes this. Often we have turned to a God we can use rather than a God we must obey. We have turned to a God who will fulfill our needs rather than to a God before whom we must surrender our rights. So friends, examine your hearts. You know, as people who talk Christian language all the time and talk to other Christians all the time, we often hear the question, how are you doing with the Lord? How's your walk? Uh, a brother asked me that the other day in a more piercing way. It was just the Holy Spirit was working in my heart and he said, how's your relationship with Jesus? What's it look like? And I had to admit to him that in many ways I was seeking to work for Jesus without loving him. What's your relationship with Jesus like? Is it contractual? He gets your church attendance and your clean living 
if you get his blessing. Is it boring? You don't really know why you do this anymore, but it's what you've always done. People would be really upset if you didn't do it anymore. Is it self-centered? Are you trying to mooch off this faith in Jesus thing in order to get a better life here and now? Friends, be warned. Believe not only in the power of Jesus, but in the call of Jesus, in the identity of the Son of God, in his purpose to save you from your sin, in his claim as king over your entire life. I think a good litmus test for this for us is the way we pray. Are you going to the Lord praying, just asking him to do things for you? Are you asking him to give him, give you more of himself? to reveal more of himself to you. If it's true that all joy ultimately comes in knowing our creator, then the most common sense prayer we can pray is, Lord, give me more of you. The miracles of Jesus are not the point. The miracles of Jesus are signs to point us to him, to the one who came to give up his life so that we might live, that we might say with Paul, I have been crucified with Christ. That's an intense statement. It's not, I have been impressed with Christ, or I like Jesus, or I like church, I like morality. It's, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Jesus claims all of you. So John's purpose in cataloging these signs, we've seen three of them, we hopefully will see four more, so that we might know that Jesus is the Son of God and that by believing in him, we might have life in his name. So Christian, your, your biggest problem this morning is not your physical health, your financial needs. This, this man's biggest problem was not the, the, the near-to-death status of his son. Your biggest problem is your sin. So look to Jesus not as a miracle worker alone, not as a wonder worker alone, but as King, Savior, and Lord. The one merciful enough to heal when he wills, but the one kind enough to look to the hearts of those who need healing and to rescue their souls. Oh, Loudon Valley Baptist Church, may we get beyond the, the crust of nominal, shallow Christianity and know Jesus himself. May we pray big prayers, as we said before, asking that he reveal himself to us even more as we read his word and that our relationship with him would be alive and thriving. Only then will we have joy and only then will the people know that we follow Christ. Let's pray. Lord, this passage is a rebuke to us. These Jews were church people. They were the equivalent of us in the first century. People who did religious things. And yet Jesus had harsh words for them. Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Lord, forgive us for using you. Forgive us for looking to you merely for what we can get from you instead of finding in you, in you alone, all we need. So Lord, humble us. Grant us grace to grow as a church and as individual Christians in deep love and relationship with you. 
Do this for your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name, amen.